Hi. It is good to be with you guys here today, truly. I'm glad you can make it. We are going to be in Hosea chapter 5 and chapter 6 today. If you want to crack a Bible open to that, let me just do a quick plug and say if you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you one. Like that would make our day. We have free Bibles at the Welcome Center. If you're viewing the live stream, glad you're joining us that way. You can email office at nhchurch.com, and we'd love to ship you a Bible, but we really care about getting the Word of God in your hands, so please take us up on that offer if you don't have a Bible. We will put these verses on the screen as well, uh, but we are going to be in Hosea chapter 5 this week. Uh, I've been rude. I have not introduced myself for those of you that are new. If you're brand new, welcome. Glad you could come. My name's Kyle Denny, as Michael said. I am the youth pastor as well as the director of finance. And so anything related to middle school ministry, high school ministry, or church resources, so like the stewardship of our resources, giving, anything financial, no one ever comes to me about questions about that. But I am an open resource for you. Please let me know how I can help. Um, I did want to put a, a reminder to parents and students that we do have some summer events going on this week. So this Wednesday, we are going to do a high school uh, pizza and trivia night. So grab some friends and come enjoy some food and be asked weird, random questions. It'll be a great time. That's not here. That's at our student center off Hazlitt Road. Uh, likewise, on Thursday night, we have our middle school Bible study that's every other week. And our coordinator, Silas, is leading us through that. Um, that's at 6 o'clock. If you're curious what we're doing this summer, we have awesome handouts that I did not think to grab with me, um, but those are on the doors on the way out. They're also on the websites, uh, and that'll tell you what we're doing this summer before we resume normal activities in the fall. Um, lastly, let me just say that if you have a student um, and you want to be in the loop, the best way to do that is with our parent email chain. So I would highly encourage you to email me to get on that email list. You can fill out a Connect card in the pews around you. You can go on the website and fill out the Contact Us. Um, okay, that being said, let me warn you before we jump into this passage. Hosea is a prophet. And the prophets, they don't read quite as smooth as the New Testament. It can sound clunky. It can sound really confusing in some parts, and that's okay. Like, it's really good when we get stretched, when we encounter other parts of the Bible that we wouldn't normally read. And so somewhere in this passage, in addition, Jesus quotes it. I'm not going to tell you where. We'll make it a little game. See if you can pick out which verse Jesus quotes in his earthly ministry in Hosea. So I have a tradition. I'm going to read the passage out in front of us, and then we're going to dive in deeper to it. This is Hosea chapter 5, verses 13. It says, When Ephraim saw his sickness... And Judah his wound. Then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jerob. But he is unable to heal you or to cure you of your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear to pieces and go away. I will carry away and there will be none to deliver. I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day, that we may live before him. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. 
What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. Therefore, I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. The word of the Lord. When was the last time you heard a sermon out of Hosea, right? Let me throw some uh, boundary markers down so you can get your bearings on where we are in the biblical narrative. So last week, Pastor Michael was talking about the four core values of the church. If you haven't seen that, would highly go back, I recommend you go back and watch it. But before that, Pastor Mark has been taking us through an Eternity to Eternity series. So we've been in Genesis, and we've been learning about this guy named Abram. And Abram was really old, and his wife was really old, where they were well past the age of having kids. And God makes this miraculous promise to Abram. He says, go out and look at the stars at the sky. Look, if you can count all those stars, that is how many descendants you will have. And so I don't want to give too much of a spoiler alert, but God fulfills that promise. He gives this miraculous birth to Abram and Sarah, and they have their child Isaac. And Isaac's son is Jacob. And all of Jacob's children become known as the nation Israel. Now, we're going to hit the fast-forward button about 1,250 years, okay? So we're, we're going way far. And what has happened is this nation of Israel has transitioned to a monarchy structure. So they have kings. But after their third king, King Solomon, after he dies, there is just so much division. There is just so much angst that the nation rips into two. You have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And I think Tech is going to put that picture up for us. So this northern kingdom is oftentimes referred to as the kingdom of Israel, but in our passage, it's referred to as Ephraim. This is the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom is called Judah. And so when this passage takes place is obviously after this nation has splits, but it's right before the northern kingdom ceases to exist. Like Hosea is often called the deathbed prophet's, Kind of a cool nickname, right? The deathbed prophet. Um, because he is the last prophet that gets sent to the northern kingdom before they are just destroyed. And from the outside, when Hosea begins his ministry, you would never see that coming. Like, they have this strong, prosperous leader, Jeroboam II, who is expanding their borders. Like, their country is growing in land. The land itself is producing abundantly People are getting rich off the land. Luxuries are becoming common. It feels like they have a blessing from a deity on them, but it doesn't last. Like quickly they realize that something has changed. It's flipped on its head, and they realize they have a problem, a deadly problem. It says in verse 13, When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jerob. I've been listening to a biography on the first president, on George Washington. And I've been struck by many things, but especially the end of his life. So at the age of 67, after he was retired, George Washington was working on his property on Mount Vernon. And he was working in the rain and the snow and the sleet. And so he was just this soggy mess, right? And when he got home, he didn't change his clothes immediately. He plopped down at the dinner table and he ate in all of this wetness. And shortly after, he developed a sickness. He got a cold, and his friend told him, hey, take some medicine for this. 
and he stubbornly refused. Do you guys know anyone like that, just refuses to take medicine? He says, you know I never take anything for a cold. Let it go like it came. Well, in the middle of the night, it did not go. It got worse. It got to such a point that he woke his wife, Martha, up to go get help because he couldn't breathe. And so in the course of his sickness, they sent for not one doctor, not two doctors, but three separate doctors. And the wisdom of the day was that when a doctor would arrive, they would bloodlet him. They, they would take out about a pint of his blood when he was already deathly sick. The last doctor that showed up, they took out two pints of his blood when he was deathly sick. And they, they described the blood as very thick and slow to remove at this point. Like, do you think? He, it's, it's likely that George Washington lost 50% of his body's total blood supply. And they tried other things as well. They, they tried inhaling steam from a teapot filled with vinegar and hot water. They tried putting ointment on his throat. But it wasn't long before George Washington passed into eternity. It didn't work. I tell this story because President Washington and the doctors, they knew something was wrong. Like what started out as this minor sickness, this minor cold, quickly became life-threatening. And they kept calling more doctors and more doctors, but they resorted to bloodletting which rather than fixing the problem, it accelerated the problem. And this is exactly what is happening to the nation of Israel at this point. The nation, both kingdoms, it says Ephraim, the northern, and Judah, the southern, it says that they have this sickness and this wound. When you combine these words together, you get this picture of a running, infected wound with pus spilling out over the top. That's gross, right? But it's meant to tell you that it's not just this minor cut. Like it's not a paper cut that they're dealing with. This is life-threatening. These wounds were often thought of as fatal before we had our modern medicine to deal with it. And so something has changed. They went from prosperity. Man, they went from having all these luxuries, all this wealth, to suddenly knowing they have a life-threatening problem. And unfortunately, we don't get to know what the details of that metaphorical wound are. Like it could be the threat of Assyrian conquest. We read about that in 2 Kings 15, but it's not certain. Whatever this metaphorical wound is, this life-threatening wound, they misdiagnose the problem. The, the second half of 13 says, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jerob, but he is unable to heal you or to cure you of your wound. So both the northern and the southern kingdom, they go running with their hands out to Assyria, which is this giant nation. They think, Assyria, surely they can heal us. They can help us with this national crisis. But God says, uh-uh, that's not really the problem. There's something else that is causing your sickness. And it shouldn't be a shock to them. God has been very blunt about what that problem is. Now, we jumped halfway into Hosea, so we missed it. But in the very opening of the book, God says in Hosea chapter 1, verse 2, Go take for yourself a wife inclined to infidelity and children of infidelity, for the land commits flagrant infidelity, abandoning the Lord. Did you catch that? The first word that God sends through Hosea is, Hey, Hosea, Go take a wife that will not stay faithful to you. 
Go take a wife that is surely to cheat on you. Now, I imagine Hosea, he's, he's probably got a, the Pentateuch rolled out, right? He's sipping his morning coffee, and he hears that and just sprays stuff everywhere, right? Like, the book of Hosea is meant to have a shock factor. You want me to do what now? Are you sure you didn't mean Isaiah? I'm Hosea, Lord. Isaiah? No, no. Oh, it's, it's for me? Okay. Like, God is going through these drastic steps to make Hosea a living parable. He's going to make Hosea's life a communication to Israel. And it's God dramatically proclaiming, you've cheated on me again and again and again. And no matter what I do, you won't come back to me. The problem that Israel has is is not this national problem. It's a God problem. They've abandoned the Lord. They've been unfaithful to him. At the end of uh, Hosea, in chapter 11, verse 2, it says, The more they were called away, the more they went away. The more they're called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. So they are living in the syncretistic religion where they'll worship Yahweh on one hand, but they're also going to worship Baal on the other. And no matter how much God pushes, no matter how much he asks them to repent, to turn back to them, they they just will not do it. Hosea has not been the first prophet sent to this northern kingdom. It's been prophet after prophet, decade after decade. And God actually calls Israel a stubborn heifer because they just will not budge. Like, there's no moving that beast. It will not budge. So the northern kingdom, they may have been at the height of their prosperity, but their moral decay was complete. Their spiritual abandonment was fulfilled. This is the generation of Israel where God finally says, enough, enough. But the problem is, Israel doesn't even realize it. Like Ephraim, the northern kingdom, they have this major problem, but they don't realize it's a God problem. They don't turn to God for help. Did you notice that? That they have this wound and this sickness, and they turn to Assyria, first off, not to God. They resort to bloodletting when they're deathly sick, and it's going to make it worse. We're going to see how that contributes to their overall destruction. They need a healer, But listen to what God gives them instead. He says in verse 14, For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear to pieces and go away. I will carry away and there will be none to deliver. And when I was maybe eight or nine years old, I was at this mall and they they had some type of attraction set up in the parking lot. I don't know if it was a circus or something else, but they had this tent and they had this cage inside the tent where if you paid however much money, you could go into the cage and you could feed a little baby tiger milk. That doesn't sound shady at all, right? Um, What's important to the story, though, is I was obsessed with tigers. Like, I had tigers on my wallpaper in my room. I had this big stuffed animal tiger that sat on the end of my bed. His name was Sparky. That's what happens when your parents don't give you an animal. You just get the giant stuffed animal to protect you. Um, And so I begged my mom. I'm like, Mom, Mom, it's a baby tiger. And so we have this picture of me feeding milk to a cute little baby tiger. Do you guys want to see an awkward elementary school Kyle? I think so. Tech, can we put that picture up? Yes. Yeah, you go, elementary school Kyle, rocking the old Navy shirt. 
In our day and age, we have somewhat tamed ferocious animals. Would you not agree? Like we have circuses where lions come out. We have zoos with lions and other dangerous animals behind bars. Some of this picture that God gives for us, it's diluted a little bit. Like we don't live in fear of lions in Michigan. Like maybe that's true in South Africa if you're watching from there randomly. But even there, you have guns to protect you. Try to step into the picture, though. The northern kingdom, they need a healer. And God says he's going to be a lion to them. Not a rabbit, not a camel, but the most ferocious animal they know. Lions are mighty. They are strong. They are stealthy. They are territorially protective. They hunt humans. And they are very hard to defend against with the weapons of this time. God verbally describes the process for Ephraim and Judah. And he says, you're going to be torn piece to piece. I, even I, will tear you piece to piece. And I will drag those bloody carcasses into the desert. There's going to be a red trail that follows behind you. And none can save you. What do you do with that? Like, does that make you uncomfortable? I thought God was love. You're telling me that God would destroy a nation, that he would destroy his own nation? That he's some type of cosmic bully? And I think that our culture, I think our broken nature, surely the devil and his cronies, they love to spin the narrative they love to twist the picture to become something that it's not. The nation of Israel is not a victim of God. God is not too harsh. The nation of Israel has rebelled to him. They are rebelling against goodness itself. And I think sometimes we've leaned so far into how loving and how merciful God is, which he is. But we miss the other side that God is also strong. He is righteous and he is serious. He is a judge, and he's a perfect, righteous judge at that. If your picture of God is that he's going to let you do whatever you want to do without ever having consequences, you have the wrong picture. Look at Romans 2.4 with me. Paul writes, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and restraint and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Look, if your picture of God is that he's going to let you do whatever you want to do and that there won't ever be any consequences, you have the wrong picture. Yes, God is patient, Yes, he is loving and he doesn't punish all evil right away, but that patience is meant to be a kindness. It's meant to give you time to repent, and Israel has run out of time. Like, first and foremost, God is saying this is a God problem. You, you can't walk away from that. You can't skirt around it. God is the cause of this problem that Israel is facing, and there is no human solution for it. He says that there will be none to deliver. This is what happens. Assyria comes in around 722 BC and just destroys the northern kingdom. The nation they thought might be their solution, 
the ones they ran open arms to, was bloodletting. That nation became their doom. They were conquered. They were torn from their homes, sent away from their cities, and put into captivity. And God stands behind it all, and he says, it's because of me. It's my judgment on you. I, even I, will tear you. But on the brink of that destruction, even with a faithless nation who has cheated on God again and again and again, his love is so pure. He is such a God of love that he's not going to abandon them. This is not God saying, I'm done. Listen to what he says. He says in verse 15, I will go away and return to my place until until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. You see God's love begin to glimmer. Even in the harshest punishment, God's saying, it's not over. I haven't abandoned you. I haven't given up on you, Israel. God's punishment is not to destroy the people completely. This is not an embittered God who's just like, I'm done, I'm out, you're on your own. No, no, no. It's not to destroy the people completely. It's to bring them completely back to him. It all pivots on one word. It pivots on until. It is a God problem, yes. And so it needs a God solution. And that solution is rooted in God's love, in his kindness. There is a quote from a Puritan pastor, Thomas Watson, who says, God is more willing to pardon and to punish. Do you believe that, New Hope? Whatever you've done in your life, whatever you've done this week, do you believe that God wants to pardon you for it instead of punish you for it? That he delights more to pardon than in the punishment. The northern kingdom's biggest problem is that they're unfaithful, yes, but also that they don't understand God. Like, they, don't, they refuse to acknowledge that they've done anything wrong. They refuse to ask for pardon, and so the cure is twofold. They have to acknowledge their guilt and seek his face. Now, acknowledge their guilt, we get that one, right? Like, when I'm in my house and I hear a big commotion break out in the living room, and I go in, and, my, and one of my boys is crying, and I say, what's going on here? And he's crying with magnetiles destroyed everywhere. And my other son is hiding in the corner. I know what's going on here, right? Like my deduction skills, they're a little better than that. So it's not because I really want to find out why he's crying. It's because I want them to confess it. I want them to acknowledge their guilt to me. Like we understand that acknowledging guilt is the first step to reconciliation. But that second one, seek his face. That's a little weird, right? I didn't know God had a face. I thought he was everywhere at all times. What way do you turn to seek God's face? And yet, as I'm talking to you now in this auditorium, I'm facing you, and you are facing me. How awkward would it be, how weird would it be, if I turned around and I gave my whole sermon like this, and you guys couldn't see any of my facial expressions, and all I did was turn my back to you? What if I turned my mic off? No, I probably wouldn't get invited to speak again if I did that. <laughs> we speak face to face, right? It conveys communication. 
It conveys relationship. How insulting is it when you're talking to one face to face and they turn away and walk, walk away from you? Like it seeks that they don't want to talk to you at all. What God is saying when he says, seek my face, he, he's saying, I want to communicate with you. I want relationship with you. God's end goal is not just do what I say. He doesn't want them just to obey rituals or traditions. He doesn't want you just to show up to church on a Sunday. He's after something so much deeper than that. He delights in something deeper, but it doesn't come without true reconciliation. It requires acknowledging their guilt and seeking his face. He says, in their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. And then we get to one of the clunky parts of the passages where it just like cuts out and you're like, what's going on there? God envisions the future Israel doing just that, acknowledging their guilt and seeking him. That's what we get in the first three verses of chapter 6. It says, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day, that we may live before him. So let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. God's punishment is not to destroy the people completely. It's to bring the people completely back to him. And that's what we get a picture of in this. The people are acknowledging, yes, God has torn us, but it doesn't stop there. We know that God will heal us. He's a God of love. He is going to bandage us up. And it goes further than that. We're not just going to be this stitched together person. He's going to renew us. We're going to have new life, new energy. He's going to revive us, and he'll raise us up on the third day. And when we, when we hear that, we think Jesus, right? Like our ears ring to what Jesus did on the cross. And that may be the ultimate fulfillment of this passage, but Hosea's day would have no concept of that. Hosea's day wouldn't be thinking Jesus. They would be hearing, God's not going to dilly-dally. Like when you pursue God, he's not going to drag his feet and say, oh, I'll get around to it eventually. No, no, no. He is going to come back to them. And it becomes this momentum, this circle going over and over where they want to know him deeper. They want to pursue him better. It says that God's going forth is as certain as the dawn. And I love that poetry. Like the dawn always comes. We have Michigan winters here. It is dark. It is dark for long periods of time, right? But the dawn always comes. So much more certain is that is God's going forth to Israel. And he also uses spring rain as a metaphor. That is also consistent. That happens in the spring, but it's life-giving. And so you get this picture that, man, if they will just repent, if they will acknowledge and seek his face, his going forth is certain. It will happen, and it will be life-giving but it rocks them back to the reality that they're in. He says in uh, chapter 6, verse 4, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. Man, God starts the book of Hosea by declaring to Israel, You keep cheating on me again and again and again, and you can hear his heart break in this. He says, what should I do? What am I to do with you? There's no covenant here. Like, there is no loyalty. There's no goodness. There's no thoughts for me. 
And the word that he chooses for loyalty is really heartbreaking. It's hesed. It is such a warm, relational word that the lack of it paints a cold picture. Some translate hesed uh, as love or as mercy or as steadfast love or as loyalty, but it is this cocktail of devotion in kindness and goodness and mercy. It's based on an unfailing kind of love. It is how God loves his people. There's one scholar, J.B. Green, who says, Acts of hesed are not grounded in perceived obligation or contract, nor can they be coerced. Rather, they arise out of affection and goodness. I, I love that. Because he's saying that God's goodness towards you is not because he feels like he has to do it. He's not like, ah, oh, they're pitiful. I, I guess I'll show them some kind. No, no, no. It arises out of who he is. God loves because it arises out of his own goodness, his own affection. And this is important for relationships. When I married my wife, Chelsea, I stood before God, I stood before others, and I did not say to God, I promise to marry Chelsea and provide a paycheck if she promises to do the laundry. I promise to help with dishes if she promises to help with house projects. If she doesn't do that, I'm out. You know, that, that, that's not what I said. That's more of a service contract. I made a covenant. I promise that in the good times and in the really hard times, in sickness or in health, I would pursue the wife that I made a covenant with before God. Regardless of how I'm feeling, regardless of how she may be treating me, I promise my hesed, my loyalty, my kindness to her. I was recently going for a run, and I told my wife I would push the boys in a double bob stroller, which is okay. You know, it's a busy road, so it, it's kind of a pain to do that, but I do still do it. It's fun. And she told me, no, nah, it's okay. You can go for a run by yourself without the boys. And so after nine years of marriage, I don't play that fake humility card anymore. I'm not like, oh, are you sure, babe? Like, do you, you, have you thought that? No, no, no. I'm getting my shoes on. I'm like, oh, let's get out of here before she changes her mind, right? See ya. Bye. Have fun. And while I'm running, I am thinking about this teaching. I'm thinking of hesed. What does that look like? And when I get back, I stretch on the pavement, and my boys come running out. They're coming out, running out with this smoothie, and they say, Dad, Dad, we have a smoothie, smoothie, and they like almost drop it while they're giving it to me, but my wife had made me this cool, refreshing chocolate banana smoothie, and it's just the smallest slice of what Hesed is. It was a kindness that went extra miles. She didn't have to do that, Right? Like she chose to do it. She was thinking of me. She was thinking about how parched I would be. She was thinking about how much more enjoyable my run would be without the kids. And that is what Hesed is. It's not just an obligatory contract. It's showing someone kindness and goodness because you can, even if they don't deserve it. God has shown Hesed again and again and again and again with Israel. He has cared for them so well. But he gets to this point and he looks at Israel. He says, you have no desire to show that to me. You keep cheating on me. You run away from me. And no matter what I do, you will not come back. Your Hesed is like a morning cloud. When the scorching sun, when it rises up and bears down on the day, when moisture is most needed, 
poof, your love is gone. You have no has said for me. Does that describe your love for God? Man, does, does your love for God quickly vanish as soon as some inconvenience arises? When things get tough, do you ditch God? Israel has no has said, it says in verse 5, Therefore I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. Now, whenever you see a therefore, if you're into circling things in your Bible, that's a great thing to circle. If nothing else, you should pause and reflect. God is saying, because you have cheated on me, generation after generation after generation, because you show no has said for me, therefore, because of that, I've hewn you in pieces by the prophets. That's weird. Like, is God giving them machetes to go around? Is this like a, an ancient purge video that we're going to watch? No, no, no. That's not what's going on here. God has given his prophets words of judgment that are sure to happen. He says the judgments will go forth like the light. And if you've ever watched fireworks late at night, you understand this picture. Like, they wait till it gets really dark where it's pitch black. You can't find the munchies around you, right? You've got to bring out your phone to light it up until you see the firework go. You see this blazing streak of light, and then it explodes, and light goes everywhere. It illuminates every corner. And God says, that, that's what my judgment's going to be. It's going to illuminate your guilt. It's going to cut through the darkness. You think Assyria is going to save you. Fine. Fine, have Assyria. I'll show you what's in their heart. They are going to be the ones that conquer you. They're going to be the ones that enslave you, and I'm going to be standing behind it all. And you're going to be, know it's me because it's my judgment. But at the tail end of this, we get one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. This is the bedrock that this passage has been leading to. God says in chapter 6, verse 6, for I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So a few weeks ago, I was reading an article about a major CPA firm, and they got fined $100 million. And that's the most any CPA firm has ever been fined before. And when I was reading through the details, they got fined so much because they had employees that cheated on their CPA exams, on the requirements for their license. If you guys want to know what portion of the CPA exam they cheated on? Ethics. You know, that's not ironic at all, right? They have some wonky, wonky value systems going here. They have thought that the right answer on the CPA exam is the most important thing, and it's not. If the right answer on the CPA exam was the most important thing, then we wouldn't care if people cheated on it. Integrity is the foundation. That is what trumps even the right answer on the CPA exam. Likewise, when God says, I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings, he's saying, Israel, you have deeply misunderstood me. Your priorities are screwed up. They are wonky. It's not the sacrifice that is the most important thing. It's not the burnt offering that's the highest priority. You can have all the right answers to the CPA exam, but if you cheat to do it, it's no good. 
sacrifice to your heart's content. But it's not the sacrifice that's weighted the most. If you're new to church, sacrifice is the act of offering something as a means of worship or thanksgiving or atonement to God. And so God commands sacrifice in the Old Testament. And yet the New Testament, the times we're living in now is different than the Old Testament. It's why you don't hear any bleeding animals, right? There's no animal sacrifice that we do anymore. When Hosea says sacrifice, he is talking about animal sacrifice because it's rooted in the word slaughter. And likewise, when he says burned offering, he's talking about something that has burned to a crisp. Like there is nothing remaining. It can be used for nothing else except an offering to the Lord. And as important as these are, that's, just, that, that's not weighted the most. What's weighted the most is has said love, loyalty towards me. It's knowledge of me. Hosea is not saying that God doesn't care about sacrifice. You run into problems if that's the case because God commands it. He's saying of the two, the loyal love, that hesed love is far weightier. Now, you're going to have the right answers on the CPA exam, but if you cheat to do it, it's no good. You can sacrifice to your heart's content, but if there's no hesed love, if there's no knowledge of who I actually am, it's no good. This might be one of my favorite verses in the Bible because it describes who God is and what he delights in. Like he doesn't get super excited to see you go through the motions. Like that, that doesn't please him. He doesn't want a service contract with you. He wants you. He wants you to show him a kindness that goes the extra mile, a kindness when you technically don't have to give it. Like, that is what God gets excited about. That's what he gets pumped up on. But that's a deal breaker for the northern kingdom. Like, they hear the prophet Hosea, and their response is embodied in a short little bit in chapter 9, verse 7. They say, the prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad. Essentially, don't listen to that crazy prophet. We, we don't have a God problem. Stubborn heifer, right? Like you just cannot push them. No matter what God does, they will not be moved. They have a God problem, but they refuse to acknowledge it until Assyria comes and destroys them. What a happy sermon, right? But it depends on what you do with it. Like, yes, this was spoken to the northern kingdom, to Hosea's audience, but it can be applied to you individually today, too. We all have a wound, we all have a sickness, and it is terminal. Like death in the world, that is a God-sized problem. There is no human solution to it. I don't care how great of a diet you eat. I don't care how much you exercise. I don't care if you seal yourself in a little sterile bubble ball, right? You may prolong your life, but you will not defeat death. It is a God-sized problem, and you need a God-sized solution. Israel will not have life until they acknowledge their guilt and seek his face. And the same is true for you, too. You need to acknowledge your guilt and seek his face to find relationship with God. And the only way to do that is through Jesus Christ. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. 
Like God is not some embittered, rageful God. He's a God that desires pardon, that delights pardon more than punishment. So much so that he sent himself, he sent his son to die on the cross. He would willingly take your sin and take the punishment on himself and give you his righteousness if you will but ask. And if this is new to you, please come talk to me. I I would love to explain it more in detail. I'd love to share more about it. If God is stirring something up in your heart, don't just sit on it. But if this is not new to you, if you are a believer, it, it doesn't just stop there. The question turns into, where are you becoming lazy in your relationship with God? Where are you failing to show hesed to God? Like our our giving here, we don't pass an offering, and we do that on purpose. We firmly believe that your giving is between you and God. And so we, we don't pass an offering, but that could creak the door for laziness to come in, right? How do you give your time? Is it towards God things? Is it towards kingdom things? Or is Sunday morning all that you will give to God? That when you do come to church, is there something that consistently beats God out for church? When you show up, do you actually show up or are you distracted? Are you lazy with the way that you're paying attention and worshiping God? Live stream, I, I love you guys. I use the live stream. It's an awesome tool. But if you're not careful, it could easily be a tool for laziness rather than for hesed. Like, it could easily turn into something where you neglect the fellowship of God and stay in your living room rather than use it to learn about God and fuel your love for him. And I know some people can't leave their house or some people live far away. That's great. Use the live stream. But don't let it fuel your laziness. Look, we all fall into these ruts. We all fall into this time when we get lazy with God and we need to seek his face anew. Ultimately, the direction of this is not, I show has said to God, so he'll show has said to me. No, no, no. God has shown you has said when you were in open rebellion to him. He has shown you has said when you didn't know about him. Like we love because he first loved us. It is just a reflection back to the goodness that we've seen, that we have experienced with God. Now, I don't know about you, but I will give my life for a God that delights in hesed more than ritual observation. I will worship forever a God that delights in hesed rather than sacrifice and burnt offerings. And I I will, because he's declared that I am his and he is mine. If you don't know about that, come see me. I I would love to share that with you. Let me pray to end our time, though. Lord, I am so grateful for the people that are here in this auditorium, the people that are viewing online. I am grateful that you've given us a congregation that does desire to show said, both to one another and to you, Lord. But I pray that you would just show us, Lord, you'd show us where we're getting lazy in our pursuit with you, that you would put a willingness in our hearts to love you, to obey you, to want to follow after you. And more so, I pray that you would put a hedge of protection around this church, God, that we would never be a church that... Uh, trumps truth so much that we forget what your mercy and what your kindness to others looks like. 
And so I'm grateful for your son. I'm grateful that you would rather pardon us than punish us, God, so much so that you would rather take the punishment yourself. And I just pray that you would work that in our hearts this week. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Hey, we have a prayer room in the back corner. We'd love to pray with you if there's anything that you need prayer for uh, this week. Have a great weekend, New Hope. It's good to be with you.